Alright, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in Mark 15 in a few moments. And uh, I just want to say that it's such a privilege and a blessing to be able to uh, to meet all of you guys. I've, I've, I hear a lot about the work that's being done here. And uh, just from a distance, I've been so encouraged and prayed for all of you. And uh, it's just cool to finally be able to see firsthand uh, all of you who have uh, started this church in, in downtown or midtown. We're in downtown, right? Yeah, okay. I got off the train at midtown, so I'm like down to whatever i don't know but anyways uh, i love you guys um and that's the point that i'm trying to make and i'm encouraged by all of you and uh it's been fun being with all of you it's been encouraging i hope mutually uh after this we're gonna have one more thing at is it three yeah at three o'clock uh and so i don't want to say all of my goodbyes yet but i just want to say it's been such a, a, a privilege and a blessing to be with all of you and to stay with josh and kirby and get to know them even better uh, we're gonna be looking in mark 15 and uh the title of the lesson on the little card thing is Jesus's suffering. And I think for a lot of people in, in our world, the reality of suffering is one of the reasons people object to the existence of God, that people have a hard time understanding how there could be a good God. And then reconciling that with the things that have happened to me or how God has even allowed me to hurt people in the ways that I have. There's some people that would say, if God even exists, he's certainly not worth serving because of the wickedness of our world. And one of the hard things about the reality of suffering is not like I can just say something to somebody that's going to make them go, oh, okay, I'm okay with suffering now. Like, that's, I'm cool with that. Like, there's no words that you can tell somebody that's just going to make them emotionally okay with everything. But one of the things that you can say is what John chapter 1 verse 11 says, where it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. On a greater level, Jesus created everything. He's the creator. He was the means by which God created the world. And Jesus came to human beings. He became a human being. And human beings, by and large, rejected him. But also his own people, he was a Jew, his Jewish people rejected him. So it gets dialed down even to his own nation. Have you ever thought, though, that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah? Which was the, what was the name of the apostle who uh, handed Jesus over? Judas. In the Greek, it's the same name, actually. I don't know. That's just kind of an ironic thing. I don't think there's much to that, but it's just kind of an ironic thing to think about. So when we look at this idea of, of suffering in religious leaders, even, there's a lot of religious leaders that have started religions and they suffered. And you can make the argument that a lot of them suffered for just reasons. Christianity is the only religion that I think can say without any kind of problem that Jesus suffered completely unjustly, didn't deserve any of what he went through. And so when you're talking to the person who's dealing with the reality of suffering in the world, one of the things that you can say is that it's not over yet. There's this, in this world, there's going to be suffering, but there is a God who entered into our suffering. And what we're going to look at in Mark chapter 15 is verses 16 to 32. This is the crucifixion scene of Jesus. We're not going to look at the moment that he actually died. We're just going to look at the moment that he was on the cross. Because in Mark's gospel, at least, it kind of breaks up into two natural sorts of sections. So I want us to look at this scene in Jesus's life and see what it teaches us about some of these concepts of suffering. And remember the overall 
uh, purpose of what we're doing for the three lessons today is how does God give us strength to live out our purpose? I'm going to suggest that one of the biggest reasons we kind of lose motivation to serve God is because of suffering. You guys ever had moments or seasons where spiritually speaking, you were gung ho, you wanted to like do everything that God had asked you to do and help other people get to know God. And then something happened in your life that was uh, a huge trial. And it made you kind of back away a little bit from what we're supposed to be. Uh, Look at Mark chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 16 to 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour or nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This scene in in the gospels has so many old testament passages that allude to that that was one of that was the reading this morning in isaiah 50 and there's also passages past the gospels that refer to this event one of those passages is you don't have to turn there but philippians 2 8 where it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross when paul says that jesus in this scene humbled himself by by dying even on a cross like the way he says even is like this is the most degradating way that you could you could die in this way in this uh, time period and one thing that i learned from that verse is that anybody who's going to follow the example of jesus has got to be a humble person the only kind of people that follow jesus are humble people now some people will say that they follow jesus but they don't act very humbly to which i would say they're not actually following him the way that he says Humble people follow the example of what we're reading here. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul says in this verse that when the gospel message was going out and people were talking about a crucified Messiah, he would go to uh, the Jews and it was a stumbling block. They would trip over it because the Jews, what they were expecting was this earthly Messiah that was going to destroy the Roman Empire and bring peace and prosperity, like your best life now, to the Jewish nation back again. And when the Jews heard that the Messiah was actually crucified, they would just trip up over that and they go, we don't get that. That doesn't make sense to us. 
Then Paul would go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and they would go, that's just foolish. You're saying that the king of the world was hung on a cross. By the way, have you ever thought before that the Bible has, like, it was kind of a cultural book, and it doesn't really relate to us anymore because we live in a different culture? Do you realize that what's happening in this scene was very countercultural? The Bible's always been countercultural. For the, the king of the world to be hung on a cross was something that that society didn't really expect or receive very well. And in this scene, with Jesus being the king on the cross, did you notice all the ironic things that are happening here? Every king needs to be proclaimed a king. You know, if, if somebody just says, hey, I'm a king, and nobody's proclaiming it or believes him, we call that person crazy. Jesus in this scene is on the cross, and people are mockingly calling him the king, but they're ironically right about that. Every king needs to have kingly attire, right? They wear the purple robes and stuff like that. Jesus, in an ironic kind of way, is given the kingly attire. Did you notice the mocking? Uh, especially in verse 31, that people were saying that Jesus, he saved other people, but he can't save himself. Do you know what's ironic about that? That the only way Jesus could have saved anybody else is if he didn't save himself. You know what the pattern for helping other people is? The way that Jesus helped us was by his wounds. Do you want to know how you help other people? By your willingness to be wounded. By your willingness to make sacrifices of your time, your energy, your talents, your resources. You feel the pain of that sacrifice, but as you do that, you're actually helping other people. He saved others. He cannot save himself. The only reason he could save us is because he didn't save himself. Look at verse 21 again in this text. In verse 21... You've got this man named Simon of Cyrene, and he's coming in from the country. I don't know if he was coming to worship at the Passover. Uh, the text doesn't explicitly say why he was coming in. But you've got this man named Simon of Cyrene. He's mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. But there's something about this guy in Mark's account that none of the other Gospels bring up. Do you know what it is? It says in this text that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, have you ever been reading the, the Gospels in particular and like noticed how some Gospels will name certain people that the other Gospels don't? Have you ever wondered why that's the case? Like, it's kind of a strange thing. Do we read about Alexander or Rufus anywhere else in the Bible? Romans chapter 16, when Paul is calling out all of the Christians that he knows about in Rome... And by the way, Mark's gospel was written to a Roman audience. He says in Romans 16, verse 13, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. I think it's the same Rufus. You want to, what I think the point of that is, is that if anybody who received the gospel of Mark, the scroll when it was hot off the presses back then, and if Rufus was part of your church, and then you got to this part of the gospel, and then you heard that Rufus's father was the guy that carried the cross. After the church service was over, they could go up to Rufus and go, bro, was that true? Did he really carry the cross? And be like, yeah, my dad talked to me about it all the time. Like, he really did it. So that gospel that we just read in that public assembly, everything's true in it. My daddy can testify to that. I didn't mean to say daddy. My dad can testify to that. <laughs> he would have been older. Wouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> but that means that everything that we're looking at in this scene really happened. So try to imagine what's happening here. At this point in the gospel, Jesus would have been scourged. 
which means that his hands would have been tied to the to this post and he would have been whipped with a cat of nine tails, which means that all of this blood would have been gushing out of his back. And then the Romans bring him into the governor's headquarters and they start to treat him like he's a play toy. Uh, they put this, these, this purple clothing on him to make him look like he's a king. And did you notice that they twist together this crown of thorns and they put the crown of thorns on his head? Now, think about some of the lessons that we looked at yesterday. What do thorns in the Bible represent? The curses, right? The, uh, after sin enters the world, you've got the curses, thorns and briars and things like that. It's as if Jesus is taking the curses of the world and he's experiencing them full force on his head. So they put that the crown of thorns on him and they start to salute him. Imagine all these Roman soldiers who they believe that the emperor is the true king of the world. And then they're saying in a mocking way, hail king of the Jews. And after they do this, the, the mocking gets ramped up. They've got this scepter, this reed that is acting like a fake scepter for a king. And they start striking him on the head. I don't know how long the thorns would have been. From what I understand in Palestine area, the thorny thorns are long thorns. And so I don't know how much blood would have been gushing from his head. Uh, but the whole battalion in verse 19, it's not just a couple people. I, whenever I have envisioned this in my mind as I've tried to imagine this scene, I've always imagined like 15 Roman soldiers like messing around with him. The text says in verse 19, it's the whole battalion. And the whole battalion can be up to 200 people. And they're spitting on him. Like when you... Jesus is getting drenched in spit. It's like, it's like flowing off of him. It's so much. Here's the king of the world experiencing all of those kinds of things. Now, after they treat him this way, they rip his kingly attire off and put him back in his regular clothes. And you can imagine the blood would have connected to the, to the robe and it would have reopened all of the wounds. And then they shove him out of the governor's headquarters and he's ready to go to Golgotha now. And so they have to go outside the city. And on the way, Jesus begins by carrying the cross. Now, in, I don't know if you guys have ever seen folks that like walk up and down the streets with like a cross. Have you guys ever seen people do that? Have you ever noticed that a lot of times those crosses have wheels on them? It's like, well, that would have been nice, like nice lubricated wheels. Like, there you go. Uh, Jesus would have carried the cross beam, which is called the patabalum, which depending on whether or not it had rained, it would weigh up to 150 pounds as far as archaeologists have been able to figure out. So he starts out carrying that. Now, he's carrying it first. We know from John's gospel in John nineteen seventeen, it says he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in, in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So he begins carrying it. But imagine he's been up all night. He's been scourged and he starts to stumble a little bit. And so the Romans make this other guy, Simon of Cyrene, start to carry it. By the way, have you ever wondered why the place of crucifixion was called the place of the skull? We've got some members at the church in California who have visited Palestine before, and they said that the mount, the little, the hill actually looks like a skull. I've never looked at something and gone, oh, that looks like a skull, but it, they say that it does. But I think that's maybe one reason why it's called the place of the skull. I think there's another reason, though, too. You remember the prophecy in Genesis 3 that there would be this offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent? The place of the skull. This is where the skull of the serpent was crushed. And so as Jesus gets up to this place, they're offering him wine mixed with myrrh, which would have been a painkiller, and he doesn't take it because he's going to experience the full effect of everything that's happening. Have you ever noticed that in the Gospels, it doesn't detail the moment of the crucifixion? Like, it just says in verse 24, four words, and they crucified him. Any first century reader of this would have known everything that that means, that they would have 
put his arms out and they would have nailed him to the cross to the horizontal beam and then they would have lifted him up onto the vertical one. And while he would be up there, it would have been very hard for him to be able to breathe. But there he is, the king in his glory on the cross. And while he's there, you can imagine Jesus looking down, there would be bystanders all around. And the Roman soldiers are treating Jesus again, kind of like as this play toy that they can get anything that they can get from him. So they start like rolling dice for his clothing. And on either side of Jesus is two robbers. Like Jesus is right in the middle. I'm going to come back to the robber business a couple times before we finish this lesson. But you got the two robbers. So try to picture all that in your mind. So there he is. And there's three waves of mocking. Uh, each wave of mocking gets a little bit more shocking. The first mockers are like the, the bystanders that are just kind of like walking back and forth. Like it's along a, a road that people would travel, I guess. And as they're looking up at Jesus, they're saying, you said that you could rebuild the temple in three days? Like when Jesus talked about his body being resurrected in three days, you said you could do that? Come down from the cross now and like show us how powerful you are. By the way, what kind of person walks up to somebody who's bleeding out on a cross and can make fun of them? What kind of person do you have to be to do that? That's the first wave of mocking. The second wave of mocking comes from the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice in verse 31 that it says that they mocked him to one another. Like, it's, you almost get this picture that they're not even, like, looking at Jesus. Like, they're not, like, mocking him to his face. It's like they're talking to one another because they can't even, like, look at him. Do you think the scribes and Pharisees were typically the kinds of people that would like to, you know, just casually watch a crucifixion? They don't seem like the kind of folks that would do that to me. But here it's like they're reveling in their success and uh, they're saying, let the king come down from the cross, like show us how great you really are. And then like, it's like in this scene, the whole world is against him because you've got the two robbers on either side. And uh, we know from Luke's account that eventually one of them repents. That's the thief on the cross story, right? Uh, but initially they both are reviling him. What could a, what could a fellow uh, criminal at least the way that everybody's looking at everybody on the cross. What could a criminal say to Jesus that would mock him in that scene? It's just terrible. What do we learn from a scene like this? Like this, the worst thing that has happened in human history. The most sinless person who ever lived. Uh, unmercifully killed in front of all these people. I'm going to suggest that one thing that we need to ask this test, text is why Jesus is suffering to begin with. You ever wondered that with this scene? Like, why is this even happening to him? And there's a few answers to that. But if you look at the way that this text begins and ends in verse 18, Jesus is being mocked as the king of the Jews. In verse 32, people are mocking him, saying that he's the king of Israel. Have you ever known that, like, whenever somebody gets mocked, the reason people get mocked is because somebody made some kind of claim and they didn't think the claim was true. So they mock somebody based on the claim that somebody made. Like, haha, that's not true. You couldn't catch the ball like in an NFL game or something like that. You said you could, but you couldn't. So like they're mocking Jesus as the king because Jesus has claimed to be the king. And kings throughout history have had authority over people's lives, right? Kings can make examples out of other people like you disobey the king you can be punished for that you can be made into a public spectacle so people know that you need to respect the king kings lay claim on people's life can you imagine a regular looking guy walking around saying that i'm the king of the world now i know that jesus didn't explicitly say it that way but people understood his messages to be that meaning 
when I was in Tennessee, there was a guy that, um, th- that I was on a run late at night and there was this guy at the street corner, like yelling out to people that they need to repent or they're going to perish. And I actually had some prior conversations with this guy. And so I went up to him and I said, Charles, what are you doing? And he said, well, uh, God has given me the authority right now to cast you into hell. Now, you all know what I was thinking, right? Like, that's a little cuckoo. What, when you see a regular looking guy making claims like this, you, you don't have like formal education. You don't come from a kingly kind of family. Like, who do you think you are? Can you imagine living in the time of Jesus? And here's this ordinary looking guy from a town that the Jewish rabbis wouldn't even acknowledge Nazareth. And he says, I'm the king of the world. And if you, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sin. It's scandalous. But do you know why people are mocking him then? Like, you don't look like a king, and part of it is that you don't have the appearance, but another part of it, after Jesus does his miracles and stuff, people know that he's got power. They don't want to have to submit to him. They don't want to have to submit. They don't want to have to give their life over to somebody. They want to have their life all for themselves and not let somebody else dictate it. By the way, one of the most valued undercurring kind of ideas of our society today is people just love their personal freedom. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. And then the Bible like flies right in the face of the thing that our culture most values. Whenever, uh, have you ever wondered why people have such emotional reactions to talking about the Bible? My dad I talked about this a little bit yesterday. The, the most angry I've ever seen my dad is when he was yelling at, at things that offended him in the Bible. It's the maddest I've ever seen him. Why do people suddenly get emotional when it comes to discussing the Bible? It's because people know that the Bible lays claim on people's life, and I don't want to have to change my life. Do you know what the motive of false teachers are in the Bible? Do you know what the motive, the biggest motive of unbelief in the Bible is that I want to do what I want to do? And I don't want somebody telling me that I have to change. Second Peter 3, 3, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Because this is a reality about the Bible and what it teaches about the nature of unbelief, that's not always the reason people don't believe, but that's a common reason. Whenever I've had Bible studies with people now who want to ask questions about the reliability of Scripture and they want to ask questions about whether or not God exists, I'm always willing to have those conversations with people. But I start with a new question now. I start out by asking them, all right, we can talk about that. But is there something that you know God wants you to do that you don't want to do? Or is there something that God has asked you to give up that you don't want to give up? And more times than not, I've found that that's really what's going on. And all of these discussions about the reliability of the Bible and did Jonah really happen and was the world really created in six days, all of that is far too superficial. There's deeper things going on than that. Ask that question next time you talk to somebody and see what happens. But this explains why Jesus is suffering, because he laid claim on people's life. This explains why we suffer as Christians. Hopefully, the reason we suffer as Christians is not because we were a jerk in the way that we tried talking to people about the Bible. Then that's just. But sometimes, the reason that the world will hate us is because we're trying to tell people about the Lord who does tell people that they need to change. And as we're striving to live in a a godly kind of way, it makes other people realize their their, uh, problems all the more. You could illustrate it like this. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and um, like the first three people order like a big fat juicy hamburger or something 
And then the fourth person goes, I want to have a salad. Because that's how the salad eaters, I eat salads, so I'm, I'm one of them. But like everybody like, that ordered the big fat burger, like swing over and look at the salad eater and they start making fun of him. Why do they do that? Because the salad eater's making them look bad. That's true on a cosmic kind of scale. At work, when you're not willing to lie when your boss wants you to lie. When you're willing to have a good work ethic, when you're willing to say the right things and, and not say the wrong things, it makes other people feel insecure about the way that they're living. And sometimes people will lash out at you because they don't want to have to change, but you're making them feel guilty. Why did Jesus suffer? Because he laid claim on people's life. But think about this other question. Uh, what about Jesus's example in his suffering? Go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. This moment in Jesus's life when he's on the cross is referenced in a couple other places in the New Testament. I want to look at two of them before we finish the lesson. But we see that Jesus was suffering. Well, what was his example in the midst of his suffering? And what does his example teach us? Because if we're going to suffer for the same reasons that Jesus suffered, how did he handle it and how do we handle it? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter wrote this letter of 1 Peter to an audience that was going through all kinds of suffering. When you think about suffering in the New Testament Bible time, what kind of suffering do you picture? In my mind, it's always like this, right? Like physical persecution. In 1 Peter, if you read through the whole book, the kind of suffering that they're going through is what people are saying about the Christians and what they're saying to the Christians. They're being reviled. They're being mistreated. They're being spoken against as evildoers, all of these sorts of things. And so it's kind of an interesting connection to the Gospels because when Jesus is crucified, does it really emphasize his physical pain? It emphasizes what people are saying about him and to him. By the way, does that seem like we can relate a little bit more to that sort of suffering in America, even though there's not this kind of persecution? So here's the question. When Jesus was treated in that way, how did he respond? I heard one preacher say before that Jesus could have just blinked his eyes and everybody, or he could have just sneezed and everybody would have, everybody would have died. Jesus isn't fighting fire with fire. Like all these people are mistreating him. He's not spitting back at them. He's, he's actually like praying that they would be forgiven. I recently did a sermon in Santee on the seven last things that Jesus said while he was on the cross, if you take all the Gospels, put them together, and look at the final words he said on the cross, three of the things that he said on the cross were actually direct quotations from Scripture. So when he was dying, he was bleeding Scripture, which is a cool idea. But some of the other things he was saying was praying for the forgiveness of other people. Now, if I was on the cross, I would be yelling. And if I was one of the bystanders and I was a believer in Jesus, I would want to be like, like punching everybody that was making fun of him. That's what I would want to do. But here's Jesus on the cross, and he's praying for their forgiveness. Now, the audience in 1 Peter, what specifically were some of the things that they were going through? Look at 1 Peter 2.13. These are some verses leading up to what he just said. 1 Peter 2.13, 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, keep in mind, First Peter 2, later on in the chapter, was talking about how Jesus didn't respond verbally. In this time period, you've got Christians who are suffering at the hands of Nero Caesar. They, didn't, they could have not liked their emperor very much. Leading up to the elections, it was so discouraging seeing the divisiveness of our society and the ways that people on either side of the platforms would be talking about one another and to one another. And here in 1 Peter 2, it says, if you don't like the governors, if you don't like whoever the leader of your nation is, you need to be careful of how you talk about that. I don't care what your convictions are about it. I don't care if you like the person or don't like the person. I don't care if it's been switched from the previous president to the new one. You need to watch how you talk about that. How are you doing with that? Skip down to verse uh, 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the uh, good and the gentle, but also the unjust. In this culture, you've got slavery which wasn't like what happened in American slavery. The quality of your life as a slave back then had everything to do with the quality of your master. So sometimes it was a good situation, sometimes it was a bad situation. This verse shows that. Sometimes people would have just masters, sometimes people would have unjust masters. And in this text, you said, Peter says, you've got, you're dealing with unjust suffering because of your boss at work. Ever, anybody ever experienced that right now? Like your workplace isn't very good in America. We can switch jobs if we want to. Back then, you were kind of locked in. So here's the point. As long as that person is still your boss, you need to watch your mouth. Yeah, but it's not fair. But, 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 but. Well, Jesus, look at Jesus' example. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. By the way, this is a verse... That shows the value of a woman to be able to influence her husband. This isn't a demeaning verse. It says that uh, the wife can actually influence the husband. But have you ever had problems with a spouse? Have you ever had problems with a family member? And they're causing me to suffer. And so when the doors are closed, I'll say all kinds of mean things and I'll fight fire with fire. And then Peter's saying in this context, you watch yourself. Well, how is it the case that Jesus uh, could do that? Well, he was on the cross. Well, Jesus was on the cross. How, what was it in him that allowed him to not fight fire with fire? What was he thinking? In verse 23 of, the, of chapter 2, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He kept entrusting himself to God. Uh, because God was going to be the one that was going to judge. Now, while Jesus was on the cross, he didn't have the right to judge. Eventually, he was going to be given that right. But while he was on the cross, it wasn't his judgment to make. Do you, do you want to know why we sometimes fight fire with fire and don't watch our tongue? It's because we think judgment starts to belong into my own hands, and so I've got to teach that person a lesson. And that's why I'm going to lash out on you right now, and that's why this is all justified, because judgment's not happening soon enough. We've got two kids. Asher is three years old, and Abigail is nine months now. And I've been told, we were in Illinois recently, the whole family was, and we were told that as the kids get older, they're going to start bickering and fighting all, over all kinds of really dumb things. And I'm anticipating days where my wife, Samantha, will tell Asher if he was the instigator, uh, you shouldn't have treated Abigail that way. And you can imagine Abigail, like my little daughter, if she's older, she's really sad that Asher mistreated her. And uh, if mommy says to Abigail, 
you just uh, wait till daddy gets home because he's going to take care of the injustice that Asher did to you. Do you think Abigail can start to find some comfort knowing that justice is around the corner? Do you want to know why? That's, that's true, again, on a cosmic scale. You want to know why we can be people who, even in the face of suffering, don't need to respond in unloving, unjust ways is because one day daddy's going to come home. And he's going to take care of all the injustices. It's not our place to judge. That's how Jesus was able to go through this. But the last thing I want to say about this text is what Jesus gained in the midst of his suffering. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we've got another passage that talks about um, this scene in Jesus's life. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lo- also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So far in this lesson, we've talked about the external suffering that we go through in this text it emphasizes to a degree the internal suffering that we go through because it says to lay aside every weight and sin that clings closely to us. There's a sense, I think, in which every Christian should understand what it means to suffer for the Lord every single week. And it's not necessarily because of how people are going to treat you. Hebrews 2.18 says that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Well, why did he suffer when he was tempted? Because temptation to sin offers momentary pleasure. And every time I say no to sin, that means there's that little pain that I feel of giving up that thing that would have felt good in the moment. Uh, Do you know what that's like this last week? Were there moments where you wanted to say things, but you bit your tongue and it hurt you to not say those things, but you did it anyways? Or those times where you wanted to look something up on the computer and it hurt in the moment to not do it, but you know that it was the best thing for you. Jesus was able to go through the external sufferings and the internal sufferings and never succumb to temptation. But here's the question. What was the key to that for him? Look at verse two again. In verse two, it says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, the joy set before him. In other words, what was Jesus thinking about? That was his future joy that helped him remain strong in the moment. Maybe the joy set before him was being back with the father, right? He talks about that in John 17, like glorify me with the glory that I had before I came here and things like that. Like it would certainly be a joy to be back in heaven. But here's the question. Did Jesus gain anything by his suffering that he did not have prior to his suffering? The bride, the church. He cleansed for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, everything like that. So here's what Jesus was thinking on the cross while he was suffering. And this is what kept him strong. One day I'm going to have a bride because of the suffering. One day I'm going to have a church that I will glorify and I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with. Do you know what that means for us? If the joy set before Jesus was you, the joy set before you is Jesus. And the more we think about where we're going to go one day, the more we start to understand that we can face trials right now and not succumb to the pressure because we've got a future in heaven. 
He delights in us, we delight in Him. And I have to think that while Jesus was on the cross, He began to experience a taste of that. I'm going to say something that you need uh, to let me explain. Because I'll say it this way. On the cross, there's three crosses, right? There were three robbers. Jesus was a robber. You've got the two unrighteous robbers. Do you remember in Mark 3, 27, where Jesus says that He came to the strong man's house and bound up the strong man to plunder back the goods. Jesus was, I think the reason he was crucified between two robbers is to get us to see the point that Jesus is the righteous robber stealing back from Satan what always belonged to him so he could acquire for himself a bride. The question for us this morning is this, has Jesus stolen your heart? Has his sacrifice gripped you? And has his love filled your heart so much that whatever he asks you to do, you will do for him? Are you serving him with all the strength that you have? This is the source that we get from him. Uh, We're about to sing a song. We're about to think about.